Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, uh, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, last Sunday, uh, as you might remember, last Sunday was Ascension Sunday, and we noted at that time uh, that the Ascension of Christ is one of the most important events in the life and ministry of Christ, not to mention of all of human history, and yet it is easily one of the most neglected doctrines and truths of the Christian faith, at least in the lives of most professing Christians. This Lord's Day today is Pentecost Sunday. The word Pentecost, if you don't, if you're not sure what that means, the word Pentecost just means 50th. And Pentecost uh, happened, it's observed, on the 50th day after Easter Sunday, uh, which is also 10 days after the actual day of the Ascension. And it, it commemorates, what, as we already read in Acts chapter 2, when the Lord poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church. Now, Pentecost actually has its roots in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament Feast of Weeks, which you can read about in Exodus chapter 34. And what was the Feast of Weeks, and why, why is it attached to the day of Pentecost? The Feast of Weeks was a harvest celebration. It was the, the celebration of the what they called the first fruits of the harvest. You know, the first fruits was a, a time of celebration because it showed you what was to come. It was a celebration of God providing for his people, and it was kind of the, if you call it, kind of like a down payment uh, of what was to come in the rest of the harvest. And now if you think about it in that kind of a context, it makes it even more fitting uh, of that text that we read in Acts chapter 2 when we saw 3,000 souls added by the grace of God to the church on that very first Pentecost Sunday. Those 3,000 souls were what? They were the first fruits of the gospel harvest, the first fruits of the harvest, the great harvest of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it happened on Pentecost Sunday. That You could say that the, the Feast of First Fruits which was a fe- was really a Pentecost feast, was a, a, a shadow of the things to come. It was supposed to teach us and prepare us for what was to come in the day of the gospel. Now, despite, despite how important Pentecost is, I think in many ways it also ranks among the most misunderstood and underappreciated doctrines among many in the church today. You know, in fact, if I were to say the word Pentecost, my guess is many of you, the first thing you think of is some of the excesses of the charismatic movement and of the Pentecostal church. You think of a Pentecostal church. Well, 
We should be a Pentecostal church in the right sense of the word. You know, I often uh, I think of I, I often think of movie lines and, and songs from lines from songs and I think I've used this one a few times. You might know uh, the band U2, and they had a, a, an album back in the, the uh, late '80s or early '90s called Rattle and Hum, and they had a cover version of an old Beatles song called Helter Skelter. And you might know I'm not a big Beatles fan, but you might know that the word the, the name Helter Skelter, that song was kind of ruined for many people by Charles Manson. It was associated with his the murders he committed, the horrific things he did, him and his followers. Well, on Rattle and Hum, uh, the singer Bono says, you know, to introduce the song, he said, this is a song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're going to steal it back. And I actually like the song now, and I didn't like it before. Well, I hope that uh, looking at things like this will kind of steal back the word Pentecost for us stodgy Presbyterians. That we'll look at this and not think of, you know, speaking in babbling tongues and whatnot. We'll think of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church uh, to empower us for witness, to empower us for ministry in the church and for testifying to the gospel of Christ, because that's what the Holy Spirit himself was given to us for. And I think for that reason alone, it's probably a good thing, I think it is a good thing, that if we even spend one Sunday a year thinking about Pentecost and looking at what the scriptures have to say about it. And so that's that, I think, is one decent uh, reason to have some form of a church calendar, a liturgical calendar. So we look at these things at least once a year and don't neglect the Holy Spirit and his ministry in, in and among us. Now, keep in mind that without the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we just read about this morning in Acts chapter 2, you know, we think of the apostles maybe as super Christians. Oh, they were just really uh, gifted men, uh, really, really uh, able, well able to do a lot of things. Without the outpouring of the Spirit, they would not have received the power to be Christ's witnesses to the ends of the earth. They would have been just as hopeless and helpless as any Galileans you had ever seen. It was only the power of Christ himself given to his church through the work of the Holy Spirit that enabled a handful of, as they said it in Acts 4, a handful of uneducated common men, even Galileans, to, to use a quote from later in the book of Acts, it allowed them to turn the world upside down with the gospel. That's not normal. And they weren't super Christians, but the Holy Spirit worked through them mightily by the word of God. That's, that's why that happened, and that's why it still happens in many ways today. Now, Paul, Paul doesn't use the word Pentecost in our text, but I think it's clearly connected to that outpouring, what we're looking at here in our text this morning. And I think Paul does want to teach us in our text, he wants to teach us in the church something about what this text in Ephesians tells us about the ongoing relevance of Pentecost for you and I today. That, I think, is what he's teaching us here in this text. For here in Ephesians 4, 7 to 16, we read of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10, ascending where? Far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Well, what did Christ do after he ascended? And how is it, uh, how is it that he is filling all things even now? That's what he's doing. How is he doing it? Well, Paul tells us. He's filling all things by giving gifts to men, verse 8, quoting Psalm 68, and also by giving apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And why did he give all those offices? To, to equip the saints, he says in verse 12, 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 11 to 12. He gave gifts to his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was not just a first century in Jerusalem with apostles thing. That was the beginning of it. But the outpouring of the Spirit is still going on today in Christ's people in the church. Now, Christ also gifted not just the apostles, but everybody within the church in such a way that, look at verse 7, grace was given to each one of us, Paul says. Paul doesn't say grace was given to guys like me, apostles. Everybody would say, well, of course, you're an apostle. You're an apostle, we're down here. He speaks to the, to the Ephesian Christians who probably hadn't been Christians that long and includes himself with them. Grace was given to each one of us. How? Look at verse 7. According to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, who gave each person in the church, each Christian, the gifts that you have? Who gave, Jesus gave them to you. How did he give them to you? By his spirit, but according to the measure of his gift. He decides what kind of gift or gifts you are to have and to what extent you have those gifts. He's the one that decides it and sovereignly dispenses those things. And why does he do that? Verse 16, so that the body of Christ may grow and be built up, quote, when each part is working properly. When each part does its part. Everyone in the church has a purpose and a a part to play in the ministry of the gospel in the church. The first thing I think that our text tells us, the whole whole chapter really does, Rob mentioned it before his prayer in some regard, is the vital importance of the local church. It's kind of one of those things in this chapter that, you know, I always get this saying wrong. If it was a a dog, it would bite you. If it was a snake, it would bite you. It's it's obvious, but sometimes we just kind of look right past it uh, as we read the scriptures. Look at verses 1 through 6. What does Paul talk about there? He goes to great lengths in the first part of this chapter to impress upon you and I the vital importance of the church. Remember, the book of Ephesians is one of those books that's very easy to outline or divide in in general terms, right? The first three chapters, what does Paul tell you there? He tells you, here's what Jesus did to save you. Here's the doctrine of the gospel. In the chapters 4 through 6, the last half of the book, What does he do? It's the therefore section. Because God saved you by his grace and did all this stuff for you through Christ and redeemed you from your sin, therefore live like this. It's the application section, so to speak. Not that there isn't doctrine in that section, but what's the first thing he talks about when he gets to chapter 4 in the application section? Of how what difference it should make, the gospel should make in your life. The first thing he brings up is what? The church. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think Paul was randomly picking things. He brings up the church. When he wants to talk talk about the walk that is worthy of our high calling in Christ, the first thing he starts with is life in the church. And we should take note of that. The Christian life cannot be lived rightly in isolation from other believers. The Christian life cannot be lived rightly in isolation from the church in particular. Cannot be. It's it's an impossibility. It's like having one body part floating out on its own. It's not the way God designed it. Everything that Paul says about the Christian life in this chapter assumes, presupposes, even demands that we be part of a local church. 
You cannot understand the rest of Ephesians apart from that. An actual local church, a body of believers with whom you and I gather together for worship and service in the name of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. Not some ethereal notion of the church out there somewhere. A local body of believers. That's what he is talking about here in this chapter. I've said it many times. You've probably get tired of me saying it. But Christianity is most certainly personal, but it is never private. The Lord did not design it to be a private enterprise. You are not a little mini church all on your own. No one is. No one is sufficient for these things. In verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul went to great lengths, not just to impress upon us the vital importance of the church, but also the vital importance of unity in the church. Look at what he says there in verses 4 through 6. He talks about this sevenfold. When we're reading Revelation in the last few months, preaching through Revelation, what's your favorite number in Revelation? Probably seven. Well, he gives us a sevenfold Trinitarian-based unity that all believers possess together in Jesus Christ. He says that we all share together in one and the same body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Heavenly Father. Every Christian has all of that in common. You may have nothing in common whatsoever with someone else in our church that you can think of, but you have all of that in common with him or her. That's how much our unity, how great our unity is and how important it is. Well, then in our text that we're looking at this morning, in verses 7 to 16, Paul goes into some detail about what that unity actually looks like in practice, what the unified church should look like. And what he says here may come as something of a surprise to you. You know, sometimes you hear the word unity, and what do you think of? We all have to be the same. For us to have unity, we have to be cookie-cutter Christians. We have to be homogenous. You know, many, many, uh, how did you call it, strategies for church growth uh, go with that kind of an idea. They say, well, you have to aim for the same group. Homogeneity, that'll grow the church. Well, that's not what happened in Acts 2, was it? They had people from every, I mean, I I almost couldn't pronounce half the names of the places and, and languages these people came from. And Jesus saved all of them and put them all in one group. They devoted themselves not to separate little groups, but to be together and to hear the apostles' teaching. Paul actually says that unity doesn't require uniformity or sameness in all other different things, but it actually demands both diversity of gifts and the unity in the faith, the unity of doctrine. In fact, he combines those two things, doesn't he, throughout the text. He combines both those things, diversity of gifts and unity in doctrine, when he talks about unity in the church. That list of spiritual gifts he gives in our text is not very complete. In fact, it's mostly just about the officers of the church from the apostles' time to ours. It's incomplete, it's not exhaustive, but it does consist in gifts that in one way or another involve doctrine. When he talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, or shepherds, or pastors, And teachers, all of those things involve teaching doctrine and preaching doctrine. That should get our attention. That doesn't mean they're the only gifts, but it means that they are essential to the unity and maturity of the church. You know, many people in in recent years have have said that doctrine is the last thing you need. If you want a church to grow and to grow in unity, the last thing you should have is doctrine, because what do they say? Doctrine does what? Divides. 
Oh, doctrine divides. Don't stay away from. Well, is there is there really a possibility of having no doctrine? Is it really a choice between doctrine or no doctrine, or is it really end up being a choice between true doctrine and false teaching? Those are your choices. There aren't three choices. There is no church without doctrine. You might have a church with false doctrine or a church with true doctrine, but there is no church, no such thing as a church with false doctrine. False doctrine divides. True doctrine unites. That's why we have things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Confessions of Faith. They're meant, they're sometimes even called forms of unity. They're things that are supposed to add to and contribute to the unity of the church in the doctrine of Christ. Doctrine matters. Well, the first thing I want to look at in our text this morning is the measure of Christ's gift that Paul mentions in verse 7. The church has a diversity of gifts by the work of the Holy Spirit according to, Paul says, the measure of Christ's gift. Look at verses 7 through 10. Paul writes there, he says, But grace, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and he quotes Psalm 68, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then he quote, he says, In saying he ascended, Christ that is, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Notice what he says in verse 7, that he, he tells us that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of you who is in Christ Jesus has a gift or gifts of some kind through the power of the Holy Spirit by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not know what the gift is. You might be exercising it without realizing it. He's kind of wired you a certain way by the Holy Spirit to do certain things, and you might never have given it much of a thought, but you've, you've gotten to work in using it, and that is, a good, that is a good thing. And that diversity of gifts, believe it or not, actually contributes and adds to the unity of the body. It doesn't take away from it, it actually adds to it. Charles Hodge, that great... Princeton Presbyterian theologian of, of centuries past, he writes this, This diversity of gifts is not only consistent with unity, but is essential to it. What does he mean? He means without a diversity of gifts, there's no unity. If everybody had the same gift, nobody would need each other. Calvin writes uh, the following. He summarizes verse 7. He says, This verse may be thus summed up. On no one has God bestowed all things, but each has received a certain measure so that we need each other, or, that, or so that we need one another, and by bringing together what is given to them individually, they help one another. Each, each of you, if I can use his words, has received a certain measure of gifting by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of Christ. Why? So that we need one another. You know, Jesus could have poured out the measure of his gift a different way if he had so chosen to do so. He could have chosen to give any one or all of you all the gifts. But then what would happen? We'd all probably be off on our own. We wouldn't see a need for each other at all. Some, you know, some Christians don't see a need for each other at all already. But they're wrong. God has not gifted anyone. The, the most gifted Christian you will ever meet does not have remotely everything that he has gifted to his church. 
the Lord Jesus Christ has gifted to his church. No one is sufficient on his own. The Lord Jesus Christ in his infinite wisdom has designed the church, the body of Christ, in such a way that we each need, whether we know it or not, we each need what the others in the church have to offer. None of us are sufficient of ourselves or by ourselves. In other words, Christ has designed you and the church in such a way as to make sure that we know that we need each other in order to grow to maturity and unity in Him. There's no other way. There's no Lone Ranger Christianity. It doesn't work that way. It wasn't intended to work that way. Now notice Paul speaks of these gifts, if I can use the word again, as both grace, he uses the word grace, and the word gift in verse 7, as if, I think, to make a point. Paul's trying to, I think, emphasize for us who aren't so so quick to know that we don't earn or deserve the gifts that we have. We don't earn them. We don't deserve them. Uh, and we certainly can't boast in them as if they were just ours inherently. They're a gift. They're of his, the measure of his grace. They don't make us any more important or more vital to the health of the body of Christ than someone else who has a different gift. The gifts that we have received, that you have received, are for the good of the church and are ours only by the grace of our risen and ascended King, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're according to his design, his purpose, and his grace. Notice also that just as Peter did in that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that we read about, how does Paul establish his teaching regarding these things? How does Paul prove his doctrine regarding spiritual gifts that Christ has poured out? He quotes from the Old Testament. He actually establishes his teaching, as he always seems to do, by the Old Testament scriptures. What does he quote? Psalm 68, 18, which says, here's a quote from the actual psalm, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. In other words, this is picture a conquering king coming back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up on a hill. So let's just say it was David. David goes to war against God's enemies, the, the enemies of God's people. God grants him victory. And what does he do? He comes home, it's like a victory parade. He comes home with the spoils of war, with some prisoners of war, and leads them in procession up, procession up the hill. It's a parade, it's kind of a way of showing off, so to speak, of showing even in a godly way, look what God has done, God has granted us victory, but that, that's the picture that's going on. And then he says, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. So it's talking about victory in war, the spoils of war, uh, the victory parade, but notice there's a little bit of a difference between that verse in Psalm 68 as it appears there and the way that Paul quotes it here in our text. After all, the psalm says the victorious and ascended king was receiving gifts among men. That's what Psalm 68 says, receiving gifts among men. And what does Paul say? That, that Christ gave gifts to men. Why the difference? Why is there a difference? Does the Bible contradict itself here? Is this one of those alleged contradictions that scoffers and skeptics are always in such a hurry to jump to conclusions about and point to and try to mock the scriptures about? Did Paul misquote Psalm 68? Was Paul a, a, a sloppy, careless scholar of the Old Testament? Is that what we're supposed to take from this? No. You know, when you look at your, if you have the ESV, you'll notice that it, it indents it. In other words, it, it puts it in quotes, it puts it so we notice he's quoting the Old Testament. Uh, certainly there's no doubt Paul has Psalm 68 in mind, right? 
But is he quoting it verbatim? Is that what Paul is trying to do here? I think there are indications in, in the quotation itself when you compare these two passages that, that indicate that Paul's not simply quoting Psalm 68 verbatim. There's more than one difference. Maybe you, maybe you noticed it, maybe you didn't. In the Psalm, the Psalm speaks in the second person. You. You ascended on high. You know, that kind of thing. How does Paul quote it? In verse 8. He, he, he says it in the third person. He, not you, he ascended as if he's speaking of and not to this ascended king. It's a subtle difference, but it's a pretty big difference. What is Paul doing? How is he using Psalm 68? He's not quoting it verbatim as such as that. What he's doing is he's, he's, he's quoting it in such a way as to explain its significance and apply it to our lives. He's saying, here's what Psalm 68, 18 was really about, and here's how it matters to you. Here's how it applies to you. The Lord, unlike just some earthly king, he ascended on high. And the spoils of war that he got in his victory over sin and death on the cross and in the resurrection, what does he do? What did kings always do with the spoils of war? They didn't just hoard them for their own use, although maybe some did. They distributed them to their people, especially to their military. They distribute the spoils of war. This is a picture of Christ having conquered all of our enemies, especially the enemy of sin, death, and the evil one. And when he ascends on high, what does he do? He starts parsing out the gifts. He starts giving out the gifts that he won in his victory. And those gifts are not gold and silver and the things that the earthly kings might give out. It's better than that. It's gifts of the Holy Spirit that he has given to each one of us to be used by him for the glory of his name and the building up of his church. So Paul's not talking about just an earthly king ascending a hill up to Jerusalem. He's talking about Jesus Christ. This psalm and Paul's quotation of it show that it's about the king of kings who had come and conquered sin, death, and the evil one on our behalf uh, through his death and resurrection of the dead. And, And here's the spoils of war that he gets to give away because of his victory over death and sin. He gives away the spoils of war to his people, and those spoils of war are the gifts. And what are those gifts? What gifts does Paul mention in verse 11? Again, this is not a complete comprehensive list. He says he, Christ, gave the apostles. He didn't give something to them. He gave to his church the apostles. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. Now, it's also, you could translate that as pastors and teachers. Now, again, it's not an exhaustive list. These, this list uh, mainly you know, includes teaching gifts of one kind or another. Uh, some New Testament passages give much more, much longer lists, much more uh, complete lists. Paul himself gives a bigger list in Romans chapter 12. I'll let you look those up on your own. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. The Apostle Peter also mentions these things in 1 Peter 4 through 17. But I think that the point still stands that there's a great diversity of gifts within the church, and that diversity is designed to foster the unity and maturity of the church. You could say that the gifts he gave that he lists in Ephesians 4, being those involving teaching gifts of one kind or another, that they're also meant to teach us about the rest of the gifts and, and the uses of them and the purposes for them. And that brings us to the second thing, I think, in our text that Paul highlights for us about the church here. When he says uh, about the measure of Christ's gift in verse 7, what's the purpose of it? 
Why did God give? Why did Christ give to each one of us the measure of, this, of, of his gift? It's that, what does he say in verse 17? That we might attain, these things are that we might attain even to, quote, the measure, same word, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The purpose of those gifts, the purpose of that measure of Christ's gift, was that you and I as the church might grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ together as a church. Notice in verse 12, Paul says that the purpose of those teaching gifts that he listed in verse 11 was, quote, to equip the saints, to equip the saints. Equipping, the word for equipping has the idea of mending fishing nets, of getting them ready, getting them prepared for use. So who's, is the, is it the pastors and teachers or even the apostles that were to do all the work? No. The pastor's job in, in some sense is to equip, my job in some sense is to equip you for the work of ministry. For the work of, maybe not the work of the ministry, word and sacrament, but the work of ministry just the same in many ways. Now, the punctuation of this verse has been uh, difficult and it's been a perplexing thing. If you add a comma, as some translations do, it kind of changes or alters how you look at it. And when you add a comma, you could say uh, that it's, that these, these gifts were, quote, for the perfecting of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's how the King James puts it. Now, if you put it that way, it sounds like the pastor's doing all the work. But he, no matter how, the, how you punctuate this text, it doesn't say that because what's the first thing it says? Equipping the saints, getting them ready, not just for heaven, but for work on this earth, for service within the church itself. These teaching gifts are intended to equip the saints for how God, how the Lord Jesus Christ would use us within the church. Now, what are the, what are the saints equipped to do? For the work of, work! For the work of ministry. How would that be for a church ad? Come join us and get to work. Come to Christ and get to work. Nobody would go for that, I don't think. But the church is to be, in some sense, an every member ministry. Everyone has a part to play. Everyone in the church is called to serve each other in some way. Again, many of you do it without even thinking about it. That's a good thing. Now, not many of us are called to be teachers. What does James 3.1 say? It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach, James includes himself, right? We who teach, what will happen? We will be judged with greater strictness. It's a fearful thing. It's something that takes a great deal of work and faith. Everyone who is to serve in some way, every believer has been gifted by God, by Jesus Christ, in some way for the good of the church. Everyone's ministry, your ministry, whatever it may be, your gift and service is needed in some way for the body of Christ to function and to grow the way it's intended to do. And what's the goal? Look at verse 13. What is the goal? What is the end goal of you using your gifts? Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Becoming like Christ, becoming his body fully as we're intended to be as his church. Unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Maturity in Christ, even to the same word again, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's how we are to be built up. And the only way for that to happen is everyone using his and her gifts. 
In case we had any doubts about the perfect, mature, complete church uh, that has an every member ministry, look at what he says in verses 15 to 16. He uses the word equipped again, to, to, as if it's a hint. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the church, joined and held together by what? By every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Each part, each ligament, each everything, each joint uh, with which it is equipped makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It takes the whole church to grow the church in maturity and unity and service and even in number is what the scriptures tell us. If we want to see the body of Christ, the church, even the local church here, being built up, it requires a, an old Navy term, maybe you've heard, I know some of you have heard, all hands on deck, everyone serving. We don't need to be all the same or have the same gifts, but we all do need to serve in some way. Church, another way of putting this, is church is not a spectator sport. You know, many, many churches today give you the impression that church is a spectator sport. That is something to come and sit and watch and go home. That is not the, the, the standard that the New Testament teaches. It is not there for you to spectate. It is not even there just for you to have your needs met and be served. It's there for you to serve within. When you think of a church, when you think of church, do we primarily think about what we can get out of it? Is that, is that how people are being trained to think about church? Do we think about churches, what can I get out of this? I hope you get something out of this. You should get something out of this. But is it the first thing you think of when you think of your church? Or do you think, you know, what's the old line by John F. Kennedy? I won't do the accent. You know, ask not what your, I'll, I'll change his words. Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. For you can do for Christ. Because he's gifted you in so many ways to serve him in the context of the church. Do we ask what our Lord would have us to do? out of gratitude for what he's done for us in saving us. Are you seeking to use the spiritual gifts that the Lord Jesus Christ has, has given you and poured out on his church and given you as a believer to build up the body in love? That's how the church grows in grace, when each member by the grace of Christ, according to the measure of Christ's gift that he has given you, when you do your part according to that gift and is used by Christ, then the body of Christ grows into the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. That's how it works. That's how Christ works through his Holy Spirit in God's people. That should be the goal because that's, that's Christ's goal for his church. And it's only possible because of the day of Pentecost and the ramifications of that day. So by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in and among each one of us, let us each serve Christ in serving the body to the glory of Christ that we might be built up and grow in him into his fullness. Let's pray.